Let's turn on our Bibles back to, by now, which ought to be a familiar place. Now to this wonderful psalm, Psalm 119. And we make our way this morning to verses 57 to 64, as Brandon said, with the children to het or heth or hate, however you pronounce that, um, uh, to this wonderful section. So if you are able and willing Would you please stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God? The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me, please? Our God in heaven, would you now indeed take your word, meet it with your spirit in our hearts, and mold us and make us into the men, women, and children you've called us to be. Lord, if we need to be encouraged this morning, would you encourage us? If we need to be corrected, would you correct us? If we need to be reproved, reprove us. And even, Lord, if we need to be rebuked, would you do so? Would you do so gently by your love and by your grace? Teach us, we ask, exalt the name of the living Christ in our midst. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we begin this morning, I want to draw our minds and our hearts backward a little bit. I want to take us back to the book of Numbers, back to chapter 18, where the Lord is giving instructions to Aaron concerning the duties, the responsibilities, and the blessings of the Levites, the the priests among the people of God. And there in verse 20 of chapter 18, the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Each of the tribes were given their portion of the promised land, their their inheritance of the land that was being given to them. They could see it. They could touch it. They could live in it and on it. And they could work it. And they could receive the blessing from it. But not the Levites. They would not receive a portion. They would not receive an inheritance or an allotment of land. No, instead for them, their inheritance, their portion, would be the Lord Himself. Now, I don't know how you process through that. Or if maybe you've never even given that any real thought. But I want you to take a second this morning and I want you to examine your heart 
response to that. What that might have been like. You can go ahead and update it to 21st century thoughts and desires and understanding of inheritance. Let's say that you're one of 12 siblings. Your father is an extremely wealthy man. In fact, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all things. And he divides a piece of land into 12 parts. And he, get, and he gifts each of the children a piece of that land. Ah, oh, think about it. You can homestead it. Take pictures of it. Put it on Instagram or on Twitter. I guess it's X now. You can have chickens. You can have all your close friends. And even your own kids and their families could come and build there together. It'll be like a little village made up of all the people that you love the most. And don't get me wrong, all those things aren't bad. There's a reason why many of us may even yearn for those things. For after all, I mean, you can hunt it, right? You can build on it. You can even have bees, if that's your thing. You can have a garden. And you could even have a tractor. That just completes the whole set, doesn't it? Oh man, it would be almost like heaven on earth. Except, except for one child. Except for Levi. Instead, the father gifts two pieces to two children of one of the other siblings. So there's still 12 portions, but for Levi, and let's say you're Levi. Let's say you're Levi. You don't get any land. You don't get a homestead. Your portion, your inheritance, is your father. You get him. And I wonder how many of our responses might be, but I really wanted a tractor. And we really need the chickens. And the garden. And the water source. What good will my father be to me? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm really not making fun. In fact, one of my own kids sent a family text a little over a week ago, and it read like this. Let's have a family compound where everyone can live on it and raise chickens and have a garden and everything. I said a moment ago, and a lot of these things and some of these desires can be good. There are reasons why many of us long for such things like that. And good gifts are good gifts. But my point is, and I hope it's an obvious one, what is it that we ultimately desire? What is it that we ultimately long for? The things and the gifts themselves? 
the earthly blessings given to us and provided by God? Are we placing our hope and our trust in those things, or do we long for the one who's given them? Do we trust in the one who gives good gifts? Do we want the Lord or just the stuff? And it's interesting that for the Levite, for the Levite of old, it was indeed a blessing. And in fact, they understood it as such. All those who received their portion of the land, yes, that's a blessing. But they had to work it and cultivate it. They had to cultivate that gift to reap the benefits of it, but not for the Levite. For the Levite, it was a direct provision from the Lord. The Levite received directly from the Lord. In fact, the pious, the righteous among the people of Israel understood that blessing. And for many of them, their attitude was, you can take the land as your portion, but, but I want the Lord as mine. You see, that's what lies behind this part of the psalm this morning. What does it mean that the Lord is my portion? That's part of what we learn here. Psalmist declares that the Lord is my portion. But it's not all we learn. In fact, as I've divided it for us, for us to walk through together, I've made note of how <clears throat> the psalmist looks at himself, he looks at his experience, he looks at his life, he looks at his reality, and then he looks at his God. So four things. Two verses in each section. My portion, your favor. My ways, your commandments. My adversaries, your law. And my companions and your steadfast love. So let's look at those four things, shall we? Let's look first to my portion and your favor. And again, again, the psalmist begins with what's fallen to him. It's not land, it's not just gifts, but it's the Lord. He proclaims the Lord is my portion. The psalmist desires not to simply possess the things of the Lord, but his desire is to possess the Lord himself. And I know it may seem funny for us to think in that way or to say it in that way, to possess the Lord. How can you do such a thing? But this really is the great hope of the believer, isn't it? It's part of the reality of the promise of God that, that has driven the people of God throughout the ages. I will be your God and you will be my people. It's those possessive pronouns that factor so importantly into our understanding of God and our relationship to Him. My God. My people. I often... As part of the call to worship or the prayer of invocation, I often say that we don't just come to worship the Lord as part of all creation. We just don't worship God from the perspective of that creator-creature distinction. If it were just that, still yet, of course, that would be enough reason to bow the knee. A way of just general revelation, the creation ought to worship its creator. 
But we don't worship him simply as our creator. No, we worship him as our God. And we worship him as his people. He has chosen us. He set us apart. He has in Calvin's words, and I love the way that he says this, as his peculiar possession. Why is it that God chose a people to be his own? And why is it that I'm part of that? We belong to Him and and He to us in that peculiar, wonderful, precious way. What a wonder that is. As I've mentioned several times as we've been in this psalm over the last several couple of months, think of the wonder of this reality the God of all creation, the creator of all things. He's the creator whom we have offended and yet He's forgiven us of our sin by the giving of His very own Son. In Him, we have the forgiveness of sin. And yet, even as wonderful as this is, and and we do, we often think of it, don't we, as as the pinnacle of our salvation. We often think of it as the pinnacle of justification. But brothers and sisters, do you realize this? This is really just a means to an end. An end that is even higher and deeper and richer than the forgiveness of sins. And we might say, how can that be? What do you mean by that? That something's greater than the forgiveness of our sin. We are forgiven of our sin so that why? So that we might have God Himself. That's the wonder of it all. Ligon Duncan says it this way, Justification is a glorious doctrine in which we learn that that God by grace grants us forgiveness and pardon and acceptance not based on what we've done but based on the work of Christ alone. And received by us only through faith. Faith alone. But that is not the greatest gift God gives. The greatest gift God gives is Himself. The forgiveness is so that we can commune with Him. So that we can enjoy the greatest gift that He gives. Which is union and communion with Him. Fellowship with Him. That's the greatest gift. I can't help but to think of the parable of the prodigal son. Many of you will remember that. The son who wanted his inheritance before the father even died. He wanted the things that were going to come to him so that he could take them away from the father. He didn't care to be with the father. He just wanted the stuff. He wanted the blessings and the gift of the Father, but did he want the presence and love and care of the Father himself? And of course, this younger son goes off and he squanders the inheritance and the gifts. And we often stop there, maybe not in reading the parable. We go on and finish reading it, but we often stop there in the application of it. Maybe even thinking that this parable is about the sinfulness of this younger brother. Maybe we think it's about the squandering of the good gifts, the good inheritance. The fact that he didn't want the father, just the gifts. 
And certainly there's application there. We, we can see that connection here even with this psalm. But that's not the only connection we see here with the psalm. In fact, it goes deeper. And it goes richer than that. Because as we read that parable closely, we learn that the point of the parable really isn't the younger son's sin. As ugly as it might have been. As sinful as it was. But it was the failure of the older brother to understand the heart of his father. It was the failure of the Pharisees who, to whom they were the ones to whom the older son pointed. It's the failure of the Pharisees to understand, one, their own need of Christ, yes, but also for their failure to understand the Father's willingness to forgive sinners to do what? To restore that relationship. So that the Son may say, Ah, this is my Father. And so that the Father may say, This is my Son. You see, the older son's heart was revealed as clearly as the younger's. He believed that he deserved the Father's things because of his own righteousness. He was angry that the father threw a party and rejoiced. He didn't want the father any more than the younger son. He just believed he deserved the father's things. I wonder, do you want the Lord as your portion? Or just his things? Just the gifts? Is He the object of your affection? For you see, when He is, His Word is that which drives you. His Word is that which we then desire, have a passion to obey. The psalmist says, I promise to keep your Word. See, when the Lord is our portion, His, His Word becomes precious to us. When we understand or and are convinced that the Lord is our inheritance, <coughs> then we're convinced His Word is that which leads us, which guides us, which provides truth for us. It's, it's there where that blessed life is found. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because the blessing of God, the favor of God, it's not contradictory to the, to the Lord as our portion. For when we strive after the Lord, when we seek Him, even as Jesus says what? He says, all these things are added unto you. And the psalmist asks for it, doesn't he? He says, I, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. As we seek the Lord, all these things, all these things are added. And the psalmist, again, as we've already seen, he's, seen, he's, he's asking in accord with the promise of God. He wants the favor of God. And he's trusting. He's trusting that God knows what's best for him. That God's favor, whatever that means, whatever form that may take, even when we don't see it as God's favor, that God's favor is what the psalmist desires. Because why? 
because he knows that this is his God and he is his part of his people. Lord, grant me your favor. Can you trust that he knows what you need? Can you trust him that in him is your fulfillment and your hope and your satisfaction? The psalmist does. Do you? Do do I? Do we? Where's your heart's desire? What's our prayer? Lord, give me the things of this world and then finally I'll be happy and content. You young people, you kids, your parents have tried that. Ask them about it. Did it bring them that fulfillment? That satisfaction? Did they find hope there in the things of the world? Ask them. Parents, tell them the truth. Or is our prayer, oh Lord, give me yourself. Give me you. And I have all I could ever need or desire. What's your hope? What's your desire? And and where's your mind? Where's our minds? What do we think about when we, when we think about our own ways? Do we go, yeah, my ways are good? Or do we think about our own ways? Do we follow our own ways or do we follow his commands? Because that's the next part, isn't it? My ways, your commands. The psalmist says, when I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. And, and that's, that's easy to to see what he means by that, right? What, what's best for me in life is to walk according to God's law. That's what's good for me. You know, I often quote one of the most sophisticated and dramatic movies ever put on the big screen. It was called Elf. There's a scene in that movie where a group of publishers are discussing a book idea. And one of the men leans over the table and as the other guy's describing this silly idea for a book, and he goes, it's so existential, and yet it's so accessible. Now you may go, I think Chris has gone off his rocker. Why quote that when we're here? Well, you're really going to think I've gone off my rocker when I tell you I've thought about it all week long. As I've been in this psalm, it's existential, and yet it's so accessible. Again, I know that may sound weird, but think about this psalm, and not just this section. Yes, particularly this section, but beyond that, Psalm 119. Think of the psalms as a whole. Think of the Word of God as a whole. This, this psalm is so concerned with our, the psalmist is so concerned with our very existence, answering big, big questions about life and existence, and yet it is so very accessible, isn't it? It's so very applicable. 
so very relevant, so very understandable. The psalmist is dealing with real life struggles, but he does so in very simple, accessible ways. When we think about what's good for us, when I think about what's good for me, when I think about the decisions that I make, when I think about what's important in life, when I think about what direction to go and which way to turn, the psalmist says, I follow your testimonies. What a wise man. And notice what he goes on to say. He says, I hasten and, and do not delay to keep your commandments. Oh, that we could say that. Oh, that we would do that. That, that we... That we, that we not tarry and compare our own thinking to the Lord's. Well, maybe there ought to be some comparison, but not in the sense of going, maybe this time I'm right and he's wrong. Maybe this time my way is better than his way. The, the, the psalmist doesn't tarry. He doesn't spend time wondering if God's ways are better than his way. He trusts the word of the Lord. He doesn't spend time arguing with himself in regard to which is better, but he's quick to obey. Why is he quick to obey? Because the Lord is his portion. That's why. And part of that is he's given himself to the Lord. His whole self to the Lord. You know, there's something that we've seen over and over and over again here in the psalm. There's been this continual reminder of the goodness of God, a continual reminder of His grace and His mercy and His favor. And we like to be reminded of those things, and we ought to be reminded. It's good to be reminded of those things because they should be a, a driver in, in our response to the Lord. <clears throat> but we've also been reminded over and over and over again of what our response ought to be to that grace and favor and mercy, haven't we? And what is that response? What should it be? It should be a bowed knee. It should be a bowed knee. It is a submission to the will and to the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we need to be reminded of that, that this is part of trusting the Lord is submitting to His will and to His Word. Trusting His Word. The Westminster Standards, which is part of the confession of our church, as Mark said to us a little bit earlier, he also said and reminded us that it's a faithful summary of the teaching of the Word of God. That we don't believe it to be the Word of God, we don't believe it to be the inspired Word, but a faithful summary of its teaching. And in the first chapter of the Westminster Confession, it's entitled, Of the Holy Scripture. Well, there's also often a question asked about that. Why does it start there? Why doesn't it start with what is chapter 2 of God and the Holy Trinity? Because God is God. Why wouldn't we start with God? Shouldn't we start there? It starts with the Holy Scripture because what has been revealed about God by God is found in the Holy Scriptures. If we want to know who He is, this is where we go. When we talk about the truth of the Scriptures, part of what we mean by that 
is that it is there. It is in God's Word, in His Scriptures, where God has revealed Himself to man. We don't go out on spiritual quests or spiritual journeys to find out about God. Why don't we? Because He's revealed Himself to us in the pages of His Word. Not outside of that. Yes, there's general revelation. Even in creation, there's enough to know that there is a God. In fact, the confession speaks of that. Listen to what it says. It says this. It says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God to such an extent that men are without excuse, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary for salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at various times and in diverse ways to reveal Himself and to declare His will to His church. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit his re- this revelation wholly to writing. Therefore, the Holy Scripture is most necessary. God's former ways of revealing His will to His people having ceased. Brothers and sisters, do we hold the Word of God in that high regard? When we think of our ways, when we think of our steps, do we turn to the Lord's Word? (coughs) And when when the cords of the wicked ensnare me, Do we, as the psalmist says, not forget His law? So when we're tempted to lash out because the cords of the wicked ensnare me, when we're tempted to trust in our own weapons or trust in the weapons of this world, do we instead run to His law? Do we run to His Word? And it's interesting. And if there wasn't an adversary, if there wasn't a problem, would even be a psalm. It seems that there's always some sort of problem in the psalms. But that's because, again, it's so applicable, it's so accessible, because that's the way life is, isn't it? There's often problems in life. Life isn't all candies and nuts. It's not all rainbows and roses. In fact, sometimes it seems that it's easy to trust the Word when things are all going swimmingly. But actually, I would make the argument that it's not easy to trust the Lord when things are going swimmingly. We just think we don't need Him. So we don't think about Him. We don't think about His Word. It's times and times of struggle where we're forced to think. When we're forced outside of ourselves. So what about times of trouble? What about, what about at midnight when, when your thoughts might get the best of you? When you awake at night because of stress from within or stress from without, where where do you go? What's the psalmist do? The psalmist says, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. That's what he says. That's where he goes. I rise to praise you. Why? Because those are good and right and true. I wonder, where do you go? I don't know about you, but I know about me. Oftentimes, the first place that I go, if I wake up at the middle of the night because of stress or because of worry or because of heartache or whatever, oftentimes the first place I go is not 
I will praise you because your righteous rules are good and true. It's not the first place I often go. But it is the place the psalmist goes. It is the place we ought to go. They are good and right and true. I'll praise you, O Lord. When I, when I want to fuss or cuss or complain, when I want to stew and brew and retaliate, do I consider my ways and bring my mind and my heart in accord with the will of God and with the Word of God because His ways are righteous and my flesh can deceive me? Or do I go elsewhere? When I brew, when I struggle, when there are adversaries around me, or when the cords of the wicked ensnare me, as the psalmist says, or when my own flesh tempts me to ignore God's righteous rules. Where do I go then? What if I need help to turn to the Lord? Do I, do I turn to others around me who I know will agree with me? Do I turn to others around me who I know will encourage me in my own distress and agree with me whether or not I'm right or good or true or whether or not I'm in sin or in righteousness? But I turn to them simply so that they can foster my flesh or do I turn to those who actually fear the Lord? Notice what the psalmist says. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. Brothers and sisters, who are your companions in times of struggle? Those who point you to the Lord? Those who, those who remind you of, of His Word and His ways? Or again, those that you know will agree with you even in your sin? Your own little echo chamber that encourages your flesh rather than to hold you account to righteousness. We, we all have those, don't we, that we... No might agree with us regardless of what is true, right, and good. We all all have those. But do we have those who will point us to Christ? Do we have those who will point us to, to God's law? This is the word of the Lord. This is righteousness. For after all, in our own wisdom, in our own flesh, there's no, there's no favor there. There's no blessing there. There's no fulfillment or satisfaction there. In fact, there's no love there. The psalmist ends this section with this, The earth, O Lord, is full of Your steadfast love. Teach me Your statutes. We need those around us who remind us of the steadfast love of the Lord. And it's everywhere. If you were just to see it, be reminded of it. Of His goodness to you. Of His love for you. It's displayed in all sorts of places. Even in general revelation, that's displayed. He's the one who cares for you. He's the one who loves you. He cares for the world. Even generally speaking, He, he waters it and He cares for it. He even cares for the sparrow. 
how much more for you, one to whom he's given his very self, how much more must he care for you? Is he the one you run to? In this is love. Not that we have loved him, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is wonderful. But it's not all. So that we may be his. And so that he may be ours. Let's pray, shall we? Our God in heaven, thank you that we as your people can claim such a wondrous reality that you are ours and we are yours. Encourage our hearts this morning by that wonderful truth. And would you seal that up unto our hearts even now as we come to the Lord's table. That you convince us of that truth by this sign and seal that you've given to us. That we in our weakness, that we often don't take you at your word. And yet so that we can know that you're telling us what is true. Not because, not because you need somehow to be vindicated, but because we need to be encouraged in our weakness. You give us not only your word, but your seal upon it. So Lord, as we come now to this sacrament of the Lord's Supper, would you seal your word upon our hearts and convince us of its truth? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.